0: in John and chapter 16. John and chapter 16. We read from verse 16 through to verse 33, and it is that uh, passage that I want, with the Lord's help, to to look at uh, this morning. The context is, and you know this, those of you who've been meeting with us regularly You know that uh, this is a part of Jesus' very personal ministry to his disciples. His public ministry, his big miracles had had, had finished. He'd, He'd come into Jerusalem and he has this special, close and intimate time with his disciples. And he is preparing his disciples for what's going to happen next preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection and ascension and leaving them to go to be with the Father. And so since Judas left and went out into the darkness after the Last Supper, Jesus opened up his heart and and shared many deep and important things with the disciples, showing them how they needed to abide in Christ, reminding them of their position with God the Father through Jesus, telling them of the help of the Holy Spirit that will be coming for them. And in many ways, this little section here that we have before us is the conclusion, the wrapping up, as it were, of Jesus's conversation with them. We're going to move into chapter 17. and chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for his disciples, for himself, and for even us in that sense. And that's where we'll be moving on to next. And so this is the conclusion. This is the preacher bringing the sermon to an end. This is the, the, the speaker bringing the discourse to the end. This is Jesus's, as it were, final words to the disciples before he is betrayed, before he is uh, crucified. And from verse 16, that these first four verses, we see a phrase that just keeps on coming up. And it's a phrase that we have as, as a title, a little while, a little while. It's said seven times in four verses. And when we keep having a, a, a phrase or a word repeated in God's word, it, it's like underlining itself and it's telling us we need to take attention to this. Something important is being said here. And the disciples picked up on this, but they weren't sure of what was being said. And so verse 18, it says, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. It must have been sad for Jesus, mustn't he? As he was opening up his heart to his disciples and and speaking with them. And they weren't understanding. Now, the disciples didn't have the, the benefit of hindsight that we do. And so often when we are in scriptures and we, we see something that's being said or we see an event that's happening, we understand it because we know the context. We know what's happened. We are looking back. 2000 years on what has happened we have the scriptures in front of us we can read them we can know them and so for them it's almost understandable that they could get to this point of of, of not really understanding not knowing what's going on they were not expecting jesus to leave that wasn't what they were wanting They, they were certainly not expecting him to die the, the disciples were expecting a kingdom to be established. They were longing for the, the Romans, the oppressors, to be kicked out. They wanted the glorious days of, of King David on his throne in Jerusalem and, and the Jewish nation and the, the kingdom coming and, and Christ the Messiah being the fulfillment of this. And, and so the thought of Jesus leaving was not really what was on their mind and on their agenda. And even though Jesus had been preparing them for this in this discourse to them, it wasn't really what they were wanting. Uh, And we see this sentiment brought out in the words of of the two disciples. The two of them were on the road to Emmaus in in Luke chapter 24. We read of this. It's after the crucifixion. There's great sadness. These two are going back to their home. And as they travel, they're speaking with someone. They don't realise it's Jesus, but they're chatting. And then Jesus speaks to them and, and they don't notice Jesus. And Jesus says, what's the matter? And, and, and they say, well, haven't you heard? Don't you know what's going on? And, and they say in verse 22, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But they were saddened by the fact that he'd been crucified. They were distressed and sorrowful by the fact that his body had been put in a tomb. And they had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. That's what they were longing for. Now they were confused when Jesus spoke to them and said, A little while. And with our hindsight, that there still can be confusion. In fact, there are three ideas of what people think that Jesus meant when he said in verse 16, a little while and I will see, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And so as I was studying and praying and reading through this, different commentators, different people would have different views. And there's three main ideas of what Jesus meant by that phrase a little while one of them was thinking that little while was the time between Jesus when he ascended into heaven and when he would return at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit they knew that Jesus was going to be with his father which was going to be better for them We read that earlier uh, and then they also knew that Jesus said that he would come back in the Father and, and that was in the Holy Spirit and, and so there's some people that feel that this is what Jesus meant by a little while that he was going to heaven and then he would return at Pentecost in the form of the Holy Spirit and there's another group of thinking that said, thinks that, that Jesus when he would leave uh, he would ascend into heaven and that was his leaving and his return in a little while would be the second coming of Christ at the end of the world. And so, in some ways, if that's what you believe, the little time we're in—that little time now—we are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of credibility with both those ideas. They're both biblical in the sense that, uh, in the sense that this is what is happening this is right thinking, Christ did ascend and Christ and the Holy Spirit was sent to them and that essentially was God, the Father, God, the Son coming back to his people in the form of the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity in that amazing and complex way and, and yes, there is the fact that we are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return the second time and that is going to happen but I think the, the context of the passage uh, what has been said here means that on balance, I'm very much convinced of of this third idea, and this is the one we're going to be going with this morning. And this is what Jesus was meaning here when he was talking to his disciples and saying, a little while. Jesus would leave at his crucifixion. Jesus would leave at his death and then return at his resurrection. And so when Jesus says a little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. He, he's talking of the fact that just later that evening, they would betray him, they would run away from him, they would forsake him, and then they wouldn't see him. Some of them, we, we, we know, probably saw him on the cross and was, saw what was going on there. But there was the death and they wouldn't see him. And they didn't see him for those three days. And then after the resurrection, they did. And the reason that I say this is when you go to verse 22 here, Jesus starts with a truly, truly, or a verily, verily, or what we could think of as an underline. Look at this. This this was their way of of italicizing something or their way of underlining something or their way of putting a highlighter pen. Truly, truly. And so Jesus is saying to disciples, listen carefully. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this is the little while that's been talked about. This is it being filled out and it's been filled out to have sort of three sections Disciples weeping and lamenting, the world rejoicing, and then it been turned around that from their sorrow, they would come to be rejoicing as the disciples. And so the disciples were weeping and sorrowful at the crucifixion of Christ. Luke chapter 23 and verse 27 tells us that there followed him. This was from, uh, from where he was tried up to the cross. And there was a great multitude of people following. And there were women who were mourning and lamenting for him. There was a sorrow and there was a sadness. We, we know that John, the disciple who Jesus loved, was there at the cross. There may have been others, but we, we realise that there was a great sorrow, a great weeping, a great sadness upon the disciples at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we see a world that was rejoicing and mocking. The Jews, as John calls them, the religious leaders and others, they got what they wanted. The crowd that on Palm Sunday were were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and worshipping, were probably the same crowd that were shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And again there in, in Luke 23 and verse 26, we have the contrast of those who are, who are, Uh, crying and and upset about what's going on. We also have these other people who stood by and they were watching and, and the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen one. And they were rejoicing and they were giggling and they were having a laugh at Christ's expense. And they were rejoicing because they got their own way. And then we also know that the disciples were were filled with joy at the resurrection. That they went through this great trauma of sadness, uh, great sadness of seeing the world rejoice, and then the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and showed Himself to the ladies first, and then to the disciples. And then, on this one occasion, again recorded in Luke. In chapter 24, they've seen Jesus in verse 52, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. With great joy. And so from this and this context, we we see here that this little while that's been talked about is that period. Christ's death on the cross, his crucifixion. and him being no more, not being seen for a little while. And then a little while later, that they would see him after his resurrection. And Jesus gives an illustration to to illustrate this point. He he brings it alive to them in verse 21. And he talks about this in, in picture language. And he talks about a woman is giving birth in verse 21. And when she's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And so often Jesus used that expression, his hour had not yet come throughout the Gospel of John. His hour had not yet come. What was his hour? His hour was the crucifixion, wasn't it? His hour was that great baptism of dying and being risen from the dead. And as verse 21 goes on, it says, but when she had delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human Being has been born into the world now there's nothing particularly pleasant about the actual process of childbirth it's been given its own special name it's been called labour and that's because it is is seriously difficult and hard work, now for for many of you who are gathered round this morning you don't have any idea of what labour pains are because you've never experienced them or as a man you never will actually experience them yourself Uh, I only know second hand from Rachel what childbirth is like but just for a very quick moment I want to give you a a little idea of of what's, what's involved here Uh, And and so there was some mothers who described what they went through. And and one lady put it like this. She said, my labour pain felt like my hips were being pulled apart. Uh, Another lady said uh, she didn't have much pain to start off with and her waters broke. And it was so painful in the middle of one contraction that she imagined herself walking away from her body and she tried to pitch herself in a happy place on a beach. And she said, of course, that didn't work. And her next thought was for an epidural to have pain relief. The lady put it like this and she said, pushing was the worst. I could feel every stretch, pull, tear. The burning was like no other. I remember feeling there's no way I could push the baby out. But once it was all done, I was so happy to hold our precious baby. It was worth it all. Now now Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples in this picture language. And and he's saying there's going to be some sorrow that's going to be really intense. There's some sorrow that's going to be really, really painful. But at the end of it, there's going to be great joy, great joy like a child being born into the world. Now, what I find particularly amazing at this stage is Jesus is not actually talking about himself here. He's not talking about his own pain and his own suffering and the joy that he will receive. Jesus here is going to go through this. Jesus knows what he's going to go through. But Jesus is concerned for his disciples and he's explained to his disciples what they're going to feel and what they're going to be going through and how things are going to be there. And doesn't this underline the heart of our Saviour? the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't this, again, in in a wonderful way, show us that Christ is thinking of others before himself? His suffering, his rejection, his pain, his anguish is secondary at this moment in time to his disciples. He wants to prepare them. He wants to help them. He wants to be with them and, and looking after them and caring for them. And so he's not using this illustration to to explain to them the great thing that he is going to do, but he's preparing them for what they are going to go through. And so I want us now to, to take some time to think about the sorrow that the cross brings and to think about the joy that the cross brings. And and so I've got two main headings, and and the first main heading that I'd like to bring to you this morning is the sorrow that the cross brings to the disciples. And and, and under this heading, the sorrow the the cross brings to the disciples, I've got five subheadings and then the second point will also have five subheadings too. So the Sorrow of the Cross brings to disciples. The first one that I want to bring to your attention is this. And that is the horrific nature of the cross. The horrific nature of the cross now we know that john the disciple who jesus loved was at the cross we read about that in john chapter 19 and verse 24 we also read in luke 23 27 there was a great multitude that followed those that were there would have seen the horrific nature of the cross We know from Scripture that Christ's body was hardly recognisable as Christ. For three years, three and a half years, the disciples had spent so much time with Jesus that they were so familiar with what he looked like. He was no stranger to him. But the, the beating, the flogging, the pain and the discomfort... It had so marred his face that he was hardly recognisable to them. Not only would they have seen this body that had been ripped and scourged and abused, they would have heard the hammer hitting the nail that they would have heard the cry of excruciating pain that just naturally would have gone up when nails were driven through flesh and bone and into the wood. They would have seen and heard the the anguish of the cross being raised into its position. And the body of Christ had been jolted and abused, and all those wounds that were oozing, the blood and the fluids, were again being abraced against the cross and opened afresh and bleeding anew. There was a horrific spectacle of the cross. They would have seen that each breath taken by Christ was difficult, laboured and giving excruciating pain. Just this last week, I've been on the phone to Birrell a few times and he's suffering from COVID and that's affected his breathing and it's been difficult for him to speak at times. But that's nothing like what it is to be crucified. Every breath had to be fought for. Every breath meant that the body needed to be moved, and every movement was pain on the wrists where the nails were, pain on the feet where the nails were, pain on the back where the scourging had been. The sorrow was seen in the horrific nature of the cross. And in our minds, we we have a pure horror of the, that the crucifixion is something that is very physical. But in reality, the, the only... Pain that we have recorded on Jesus' lips was was not a pain that we read of him crying out in pain when the nails went through. It's not a pain that we read of, of, of his breathing. We know those things to be real. Medically and scientifically, that was a pain that he was in physically. But the pain that Jesus talked about on the cross was this. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? The mental and the psychological and the deeper spiritual trauma of the cross were far greater than the physical. As human beings we can understand something of the physical, we can almost get our minds around that in some way, and it's horrific, but just the mental, and then deeper still, the spiritual. Christ who knew no sin at that moment on the cross became sin. He became and took on board the sins of his people. And by taking on board the sins of his people, Jesus the man was forsaken by God. And at that moment, the horror of the cross was that Jesus was receiving the full wrath of God for the sins of his people? The sorrow of the cross is seen in the horrific nature of the cross. But linked very closely to that is seen in the horrific nature of sin. That the nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross. We sometimes sing that his love kept him on, his cro- on the cross, and there is a great sense and a truth in that, but also we could say that the sins of his people kept him on the cross. If there was no sin to atone for, there would be no need of Christ to be on the cross. But this awful suffering that Christ was going through, the horror that we've just tried to consider in that 1st subpoint, gives us a glimpse of what God thinks of sin. And part of the suffering of the cross is this this nature of sin. Sin that separates man from God. Sin that separated Jesus, the man, from God. And it wasn't his own sin. It was the sins of his people. We find it difficult to to comprehend or think about what hell could be. An eternal torment, eternal destruction, eternal pain, eternal suffering. But the eternal one, Jesus, what he went through on the cross was because of sin. And so we get underlined in in a fresh way that the nature, the horrific nature of sin. But also we move on and we have the horrific feeling of being left. These disciples, as they were gathered around the cross, those that were there, or when they met up later afterwards, Their hopes, their dreams, the last three and a half years of their life had come shattering in around on them as the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb. They understand the humanity of death. They understood the finality of it. Yes, they had rejoiced to see Lazarus raised from the dead and brought back, but there was no one to raise Christ from the dead. Their Messiah, their chosen one, their king, the Lord who they shouted Hosanna to now was dead. He'd left them. They knew that death, separated the living from the dead. And they felt that the one that they'd loved, the one that they followed, the one that had given them hope, was no more. And the hope had gone. And they had the horrific feeling of being left. But in many ways, to make matters worse, as it were, They had the horror of a mocking world. Jesus said to them, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Given the context of the crucifixion, that this illustration doesn't do it justice, but it might just help a little bit. A lot of you support, uh, support a sports team. And if your sports team has lost a game, the last thing you want to do is meet a friend who supports the opposing team. Because you know what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to rib you. They're going to gloat over the fact that they beat you, don't they? And that's just a frivolous little thing. But here was the world, and it was desperate to get rid of of Jesus they didn't want his kingdom to come they didn't want his will to be done they didn't want any other king than themselves the Jews wanted their own kingdom established on their own terms the religious leaders wanted to be in control and on the top and all round the Jews were happy that Christ was dying on the cross They were happy that he was in a tomb and it was sealed. They delighted in the fact that they had won and they were gloating and they were happy and they were a a, a mocking world. There was a mocking world around. And then this mocking world was part of the suffering that the disciples had gone through. The rulers, the religious leaders looked as though they had won. And then fifthly, under this heading of the the sorrow of the cross for the disciples is this, it was the the horror of knowing they forsook him. In in verse 32, it says, Behold, the hour has come. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and will leave me alone. I can imagine those disciples back then suffering, if only. If only I had not run away. If only I had been brave. If only I had not betrayed. If only I'd shown him more love when he was around. If only I'd had a pot of ointment to pour over him like that lady did. If only, if only. And so often the horrors of knowing they forsook him must have haunted them in those hours and moments and days after his crucifixion. Uh, and again, in, in the light of this, we see the heart of God. We see the heart of Jesus, knowing that they were going to fail, knowing that they were going to to. to, 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 to Disperse and be scattered and leave him alone. Jesus doesn't write them off. He offers them comfort. And it may be right now that somebody who is listening needs to hear that. In your heart there is, if only I hadn't sinned in that way. If only I hadn't done that. And Christ's work on the cross is greater than our if-onlys. And Christ's work on the cross is there for you. And yes, maybe you have sinned and maybe you have messed up, but look to your Saviour. There, the disciples, he knew that they would mess up. He knew that they would forsake him. And yet he was still comforting them because that is the heart of the Saviour, Jesus. But what we see here is the sorrows of the cross turn into joy. And I want to stress this. Verse 23 says, but your sorrow will turn Into joy. The sorrow of the cross turns into joy. The sorrow is not replaced, the sorrow is not compensated for joy, but the actual sorrow turns into joy. And so that brings us on to our second point the joy the cross brings to the disciples. That might seem quite strange. We can understand the sorrow that the cross brings, but there is a joy. The sorrow, the pain turns into joy. That's a picture language of the the, the mother giving birth. There is the pain of the birth and then the joy of the child. What is the joy that the cross brings? And, And firstly, we see that sin is paid for in full. The work of the cross was for the Lord Jesus Christ to pay For the sins of his people. God demands justice. And God's justice as a holy God is to pour out his wrath and just indignation on sin. And that's what hell is for. God's mercy is that we don't we're not consumed now. But is waiting in abeyance. But what Jesus did for his people was rather than them suffer eternally for their sins, Christ on the cross paid the price for their sins. The wrath of God that was deserving upon their sins was placed upon him. And and Jesus there on the cross sucked up the wrath of God. He drank the cup, as it were. And he did it to pay the price of the sin. Just like the Old Testament sacrifice that was there at the Passover that had just been happening and people had that on their minds and and they knew what was about to happen and they knew the sacrificial lamb was, was cut and the sins of the people put on it. Here Jesus was paying a once and for all sacrifice for his people. And we know this sacrifice was acceptable to God and justice was done. Never was a lamb slaughtered and it came back to life again. It was a picture. But Jesus, he was slaughtered. In fact, Jesus gave up his life for his people. And then he rose again, showing that death did not have the victory. Sin did not have the eternal victory because the wages of sin was paid for by Christ. The price of the sins of God's people was paid in full by the sinless. And just as the horror of sin is the sorrow of the cross, the horror of sins being paid for in full is the joy that the cross brings to Jesus' disciples. But we also see this is an eternal joy. It's an eternal joy. You see, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to come back. Jesus paid the price for the sins of his people on the cross. And this changes everything. This means that his people will be eternally connected to him. Because Jesus was forsaken by God for the sins of his people, his people will never be forsaken of God. And so in John 16, that verse 22, Jesus puts it like this, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Why? Because the joy that has been given to you through Christ is an eternal joy. This world around about us spends so much time and effort in trying to have joy, trying to have purpose, trying to have happiness. And no matter the quest, no matter the financial the resource that's placed into it, it never fully satisfies because there is no eternal joy ever found in this world apart from Christ. Christ gives eternal joy. People find temporary joy in a moment, in a relationship, in having wealth, in having an event, in having stuff, in being this position or that position. But those things all vanish. But the joy that Christ gave his people on the cross was an eternal joy. It was a joy that can never be taken away from them. It's a joy that helps them through every day because there is a hope for an eternal tomorrow. And friend, if that joy is yours, if you know the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, if you know that your eternity is secured in Christ, that joy can never be taken away because the sins have been dealt with. What would keep you from God has been dealt with. And you are part of God's family now and forevermore and that can never be taken away and that's the joy that the cross brings it is a joy which is an eternal joy but also we see here that there is the joy of answered prayers jesus has mentioned this before to the disciples and and he says to them in verse 25 until now you've asked nothing in my name Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Only those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour, only those who name the Lord Jesus Christ, who come to God in prayer through the Son, can have their prayers answered. And here Jesus is saying to his disciples, what I've worked on the cross is allowing you to come before the Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to bring your requests. And because you bring your requests through Jesus, God will answer. Now we've seen in the past, there's a whole lot of caveats with that in the sense that we are only going to ask according to God's will, and we're going to ask Uh, in his name, and so it has to be the things that he is going going to give to us. This is not to to, uh, just fulfil our own desires and the lusts of our flesh. But this here is underlining that on the cross, our right, our privilege to be able to come in the presence of God in prayer is given to us through Jesus and this is so that our joy may be full. For some people, that they would think that their joy would be full if they had a bank account that never emptied. And their thought would be, this would be where real joy is if I could go to this endless supply of wealth and get what I wanted all the time. And we know from the the mega wealthy, that that isn't where real joy and happiness is found. But here what we have is access to the owner of the world. Not just the world, the universe, everything. And we can come before the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. And that gives us joy. The emptiness, the shallowness, the the, the fertility of life is a life without God. And people who are godless are never, ever, ever happy and never, ever have true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy. But Christ on the cross brought his people in eternal relationship with God. And that relationship is seen in prayer. And we can come in prayer, asking in Jesus' name, and we will receive. And I think this is particularly speaking to asking for the Holy Spirit, and we know that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, He will be given to us. But there's far many other things that we can ask for in Jesus' name, isn't there? Our provision, our being cared for, our need of wisdom. And God will answer according to his will and to the honour and the glory of his name. And so one of the joys of the cross as disciples is answer prayers. But there's more. And there's this astounding one that we have here coming up. And that is the joy of the cross brings to the disciples is being loved by God. Be being loved by God. Verse 27. The Father loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from you. This gives us clarity to John 3.16. For God to so love the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here in this passage, we, we hear the joy of knowing that we've been loved by the Father. And how does the Father show his ultimate love to us? By sending his Son. And not just sending his Son to the world, but sending his Son to the world to perish on our behalf. Sending his Son to this world to suffer the agonies of the cross. And in many ways, we could put it like this, the cross is the greatest love story ever told. So often the love stories that the world shares and and dreams up is, is of two people who are brought together. And what we have here is we have an almighty God and wretched sinners who are enemies, who do not want to know him, who do not like him, who are at enmity with him, who filled their lives with everything that he hates. And yet God's love is so great for his people that he sent his only son to pay the price, to make it right, so that justice could be done. And the cross underlines God's love for his disciples. And because God loves us so much and through the power of his Holy Spirit, he brings us to a position that we believe and we love him to. And then we also see here that the other joy that the cross brings is real peace. Real peace. Jesus has already told his disciples that there will be persecution. He's already told them that there will be tribulation, that it's painful. But the reality of this this tribulation, the reality of this pain doesn't have to rob us of our joy. Our joy is not in the moment. Our joy is in the peace that we have with God. And Jesus purchased that peace for us on the cross. Verse 33, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus has reminded his disciples again, very open with them, not hidden in the small print. You will have tribulation. But the big thing is you have peace in me. How do you have peace in me? Take heart. I have overcome The world. There is no real peace in this world. The only real peace in this world is to be at peace with the maker of the world, God Himself. And our natural position is to be in rebellion with God, going our own way, and that is sin. And the only way that sin can be dealt with is either eternally under the punishment of God or taken by Christ. On the cross. And the reason that the believers and the, and the disciples can have real peace is because Jesus has given it to them by paying the price for their sins. And we can only know this peace because Jesus overcame on the cross. Jesus overcame the world. And what I find striking about this is the confidence of Jesus here. The cross hasn't happened, but it's going to happen. But he knows that he is going to win because he says, I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And if he knew the battle was won before it has taken place, how much more peace should that bring to us now we know that the price has been paid and so here we have it we've got to the end of this this message that Jesus has had for his disciples and in a little while Jesus has explained that the sorrow that the cross brings to the disciples and then he, he develops this and shows the joys that the cross brings to the disciples. And in many ways, you could just bring this all together with this phrase. No matter how bad the tribulation gets, the cross tells us, take heart, I have overcome the world. Your own personal situation comes into this. If you are a believer, if you are a disciple, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how bad things get in this world, the cross tells us, take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And so we can take heart no matter what problem faces us, no matter what challenge comes against us, no matter what persecution we come up against, we can take heart because the cross tells us Jesus has overcome. And we, through him, have been brought peace. We, through him, have been made right with God. We, through him, have an eternity that is secure. And friends, friends, in our little time, our life may be painful, like childbirth. But because Christ is overcome, there will be great joy in eternity, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we as your children have etched on our minds the wonder of what happened at the cross and in our difficulties in our distresses may we take heart because Jesus has overcome the world and as our big brother he's gone before us and through him we can be more than conquerors too and for anyone who has not got that hope who has not got that joy who's only got the, the sins of their own existence to hold on to we pray that today maybe the day when they call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.